0: Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the book of 1 John. 1 John is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We are, as is our custom, we move through books of the Bible and we are moving through this letter that the Apostle John wrote. And we have come this morning to a very familiar paragraph in 1 John chapter 2, verses numbered verses 15 through 17. So 1 John 2, 15 to 17. I want to read it and uh, you follow along as I do uh, this morning. This is what the Apostle wrote, "'Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever.'" Uh, in his book about First John, Warren Wiersbe writes about a group of first graders who went to a, on a tour of a hospital. They walked all around the hospital, observed everything that was happening, and when they were finished with the tour, the nurse who had been leading them around said, now, does anybody have any questions? And one little boy raised his hand and he said, yeah, why is everybody around here always washing their hands? Uh, it was a popular question among the students, and the nurse looked at them and said, There are two reasons why everyone around here washes their hands. Number one, they love health. And number two, they hate germs. That is an insightful answer. And it applies to a lot uh, of areas of life. Love and hate often go together. In fact, if you don't hate anything at all, then it is doubtful that you actually truly love anything. If you love your kids, part of loving your kids means you hate what harms them. If you love your country, one of the things that that love entails is hating what hurts it. Now, one of the reasons this is election season this week, um, election day this week, one of the reasons that politics is so divisive is we can't decide together we can't agree on what it is that's harming us. We have a strong suspicion that it's actually the people in the other party, so we hate them. Hmm. If you love your church, you hate what hurts your church. Love and hate often go hand in hand. Now, 1 John is a book about love. It's about God's love for us. It's about our love for God. It's about our love for one another. What sort of hatreds would go along hand in hand with those loves? This morning, we're going to talk about a type of love that is poisonous, that is a contradictor of a genuine love for God. Arising for these paragraphs, we're going to talk about, and here's another phrase that I borrowed from Dr. Wearsby, we're going to talk about the love that God hates. Uh, the love that God hates. And I want, to, I want you to show two, I, want to, I want you to see two things in this paragraph. First, we're going to talk about what the sort of love that God hates is. What is this love that God hates? And then we're going to talk, secondly, about why God hates that love. So what sort of love does God hate? And, and why does God hate it so much? Why is it so terribly, that sort of love, so terribly destructive? So let's start talking already about what that is. What is the love that God hates? Quite simply, God hates love for the world. He hates love for the world. The command is very clear. It's very basic. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything that is in the world. Do not love the world or anything that's in the world. Now, immediately... And we read that and we have questions. I can name three questions that, that we want to think about when we even think about this passage. Important questions. Here's the first one. Doesn't God love the world? Isn't that the most famous verse in all of the Bible? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God loves the world, but you better not. Is that how is that what this is going this is what it's saying here? It's very odd. Today we have to think carefully about words, words in the Bible, and I want to think carefully with you for a few minutes about the word world. See, the Bible uses the word world in at least three different ways. First, the Bible uses the word world to describe the physical world, the planet, the earth. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis says, the world, and that's not what John is writing about here. He's not, writing, he's not saying, do not love the planet, that's not what he's saying. In fact, the world that God made is good. It's very good. And in 1 Timothy 6:17 it says, "God richly provides you with everything for your enjoyment." Why did God make blue jays and sunsets and families and sugar canes and puppy dogs and I hate to admit it, green beans and sex? Why did God make all of those things for your enjoyment, for our enjoyment? This this is not about the physical world. Sometimes the Bible uses the word world to describe the human world, the population, the people that live in the world. That would be John 3.16, For God so loved the world, the people live in the world. Third, sometimes the Bible uses the word world to refer to the world as a system a system, specifically a system that exists in opposition to God. And we're going to talk about that, and that's what this is talking about. Uh, but I think John 1.10, I'm going to give you an example here of a verse in which the word world is used in all three of those ways in one verse. Look what John 1.10 says. He, speaking of the Lord Jesus, was in the world, that is, he's in the system, And though the world was made through him, that's the planet, he made the planet, the world, the people living on the planet, did not recognize him. Do you see that? All three uses of the word world in that one verse. Do not love the world, do not love the system of the world that is opposed to God. The Bible tells us about this uh, quite a bit. This system, this world system, is actually the domain of God's enemy, uh, Satan. And the Bible talks about this in several places. Flip over with me to 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19. All right, look what it says. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So this world... The system is under the control of our adversary, the devil. It's interesting he uses the phrase evil one. Do you remember we talked about this last in chapter 2, verse 14? John was writing to the church and he's affirming them and he's saying to them, you are strong because the word of God lives and you have overcome the evil one. I think that phrase evil one is what made John immediately start to think about this command, do not love the world. See the evil one is to be overcome. He's not to be loved. In John 12, the Gospel of John 12:31, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. This is his world. Look what uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6:11 and 12. I, I wrote that down. That verse down on the green sheet. I think. So there is this world system that is organized under Satan in opposition to God. Now, we use the word world that way. We might talk about the world of sports. A newscaster might come on and say, and from the world of sports tonight, there's this organized system of athletics that he's going to talk about. Well, there's this organized system that is prevalent in our world and on the planet that is ruled by Satan that is opposed to God. That's that's the third way that the Bible uses the word world, and that's what it's talking about here. What's interesting is that sometimes the third use of that word world bleeds into the second use of that word world, the human population, because the system is made up of people. So when you read John 3.16, you should read it thinking about this system that's opposed to God. So we read the text and it says, For God so loved the world. You shouldn't think about the world necessarily in its its bigness, but the world in its badness. For God so loved the world. Don't first think, all those people? Think to yourself first, all those people. Those kind of people. Those world people. Those are the people that God loves. Now the Bible also tells us that the followers of Jesus, that we who are followers of Jesus, were alien to this world. That's interesting. Look at 1 John 3.1. 1 John 3.1. So just a couple pages around. 1 John 3.1. Look what it says. We're going to read this a little bit later too. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Isn't that interesting, think about this. your encounter with the love of God is so magnificent that it makes you an alien on this planet. It makes you a stranger here in this world um, and then uh Jesus uh, said about us in John 15. He said, listen to John 15, 18 and 19. If the world hates you, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is you do not belong to the world... But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. In John 17, Jesus said that we are not of the world. We are in the world, but we're not of the world. Becoming a follower of Jesus is so radical a change that it transforms your identity. It gives you a new homeland. And now this world, it's not your home anymore, which would make a good song. Right? This this world is, is alien to us. It's strange to us. I'll give an example of how that is. I, I, I've used this illustration before. Today, some of you, you will go home and you will read the newspaper. You'll read today's newspaper. It will talk about everything uh, that it can think of that's happening in the world. And not once in those pages, maybe once because this is Lancaster County, but not once in those pages will there be a reference to the fact that God rules the nations. How can you write about the nations and not at once mention the fact that God rules the nations? That's crazy. It's weird. But we think it's weird because we're not of this world. Jesus has chosen us out of this world. We're strangers and aliens in this world. Uh, about a year ago, several of us from our church spent a week in uh, France. We were serving in a retreat for missionaries. It was a great privilege. And uh, uh, one of the days that we were there, we, uh, Stephen, Don, and Iles took us around and showed us the, the cities in which they, they serve. And I recognized a lot of things that were in France. I recognized a lot of things. There were streets and, and there were houses and there were people. There were cars. They looked a little different than the cars we hear. But I, I was familiar with the things, but I had no ability to speak to the people. Uh, the only way that I could communicate was if Cheryl Kuiper was on hand to translate, and I was completely dependent on her. Francis is a foreign land for followers of Jesus. This world is a foreign land we 're dependent upon the Holy Spirit in order to survive in this strange world in which we live because we 're not of the world we 're aliens to the world. This is different. this is weird to us. This is the system that we live in, but it 's not the system that we 're supposed to love. Now, that's another question that I have about this. When John says, do not love the world, what does he mean when he says, do not love the world? A few weeks ago, we read about uh, uh, Jesus commanding us in John 13 to love one another. Here's a new command I give to you, love one another. And I borrowed Howard Marshall's definition of love. He says, love is caring for the needs of a fellow brother or sister at the cost of your own. Self-sacrificial love. I love, I truly love you in in a way that Jesus calls when it is my joy to see you satisfied. When you are satisfied and and your satisfaction, my joy is found in that, that's true love. Now that can't be what John is is writing about here, right? I love the world so much that when the world's needs are met, I'm satisfied. That can't be right. Not, Not quite D.A. Carson, he helps a little bit here. He says, in John 3.16, when the Bible says that God loved the world, there it's talking about the holy love of redemption. The holy love of redemption. I'm going to rescue these people because I love them. But in John 2, 1 John 2, when he tells us not to love the world, that's not the holy love of redemption. He's talking here about the selfish love of participation. The selfish love of participation. Do not love the world. Do not treasure the world. Do not long for, do not value, do not devote yourself to the world, this system that is opposed to God. Do not love the world or anything in it. Well, that's the command. But, but John, can you help me understand that? I, I, I'm supposed to love the people in the sense that, that we love our enemies and we love our neighbors. I get that. But we're not supposed to love this world system. How does, can you explain, can you help us out anymore? And John says, yes, I can. Let me talk to you about what's in the world. What is in the world? And he mentions three characteristics in verse 16. Three things that mark the world. Three things that tend to give us the most trouble as human beings. Well, do not love the world or anything in the world, but what's in the world? Three things. Number one, the first thing in the world is the lust of the flesh. Your translation might say, uh, the sinful cravings or the cravings of sinful man. Your translation might say that. Now again, we have to think about words. When the Bible uses the word lust, the Bible uses the word lust. Most of the time it's negative. Some of the times it's positive. So in 1 Timothy 3, one, the text says, If anyone longs to be an elder, he desires a noble task. The word lust there, if anyone lusts after being an elder, you lust for a noble office. In a, we're, the elders are right now forming our nominating committee. It will be time uh, for the congregation to nominate new men to serve as elders. We need two more men to begin their ministry as elders in uh, February. And we want people who long for that position, people who long for that shepherding ministry in our church. And it is worthy, it is, it is good to lust. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? To lust after being an elder. The Bible uses that word, that language that way. Most of the time, though, the word lust is, is um, negative. Calvin uh, says that lust is inordinate desire. Um, wanting the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reason. It's lust. And the word flesh, lust of the flesh. Flesh sometimes refers to your body. You, you are made as a human being of flesh and blood. But usually, when the New Testament writers use the word flesh, they're referring to that part of you that is naturally opposed to God. There is part of your nature that is opposed to God. You inherited this part of your nature from your parents. It's alienated from God. It's opposed to God. And it is part of us all. Occasionally, you hear people talk about um, their belief that that human beings are basically good. I think that's the default position of most Americans. You say, so what do you think about human nature? Well, humans are basically good people. I mean, I think most people are basically good, right? So then you ask them, the next question out of your mouth should be, why is the world so messed up? How do you read the news last week and think that the world is basically good? How do you think that? Well, your answer, the answer to the question, will reveal the source of your hope. Some people will say, People do terrible things because of poverty. Or people do terrible things because of a lack of education. Or people do terrible things because their religion makes them terrible people. And that's what religion does. It ruins everything. Or people do terrible things because they've been abused. Hurt people hurt people, the saying goes. And, and that's why there's terrible things in the world because people aren't educated enough or people are in poverty or, or their religion makes them terrible. See, they're trying to explain what's wrong with the world. And so if we could just give more education or fix poverty or stop abuse or suppress religion, then we could fix everything. The problem is, our world is getting better and better at educating people. And more people were brought out of poverty in the last 100 years than in the previous 4,000 combined. We have a lot of education about abuse, are you sure what you're suggesting is enough? Is it really enough to describe really what's wrong with the world? See, the Bible says that what's wrong with the, the world is at the, the core of the human heart, this fleshly attitude of, of rebellion against God. Look how Paul writes about this in Galatians 5. He says, Live by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. That's the word flesh. The NIV translates it, sinful nature there. For the sinful nature, the flesh, desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not know what you want. You have within you this capacity of desire and and this flesh that is opposed to God. You know what this is like if you've ever been inside of a sheets. Uh, there's a Sheets in Millersville. We like the new Sheets. It's several years old now. The Sheets in Millersville, uh, we get gas there. I know some of you are Wah Wah partisans, and some of you are for Turkey Hill of uh, Turkey Hill. But, but um, we go. We get gas at Sheets, and occasionally we go get uh, food at Sheets. And you walk into Sheets, and it is a paradise of junk food. Um, they've got slushies and milkshakes and soda. Oh my, right. Chips and candy and Slim Jims and donuts and cookies, and they cook food in Sheets for you. You can get cook. The, really, they just fry food. That's all they do at Sheets is they fry food for you. Thousands of terrible items for you to consume at Sheets, right? Um, near the cash register, there is though a lonely banana for sale, <laughs> or a lonely apple, couple oranges maybe, right? I have seen hundreds of people in sheets over the years, and I have never seen anyone buy a piece of fruit at sheets. They buy fruit snacks and fruit roll-ups, but no fruit, right? Now, why is that? Why is that? Do you suppose it's because people don't know that the fruit is genuinely better for them than than the, the, the candy they want to buy? Now... Um, I know some of you are you health conscious people are you thinking about fruit and how high in sugar it is, but at least it has vitamins, right? It's better for you than that king size Twix bar you're buying right now, okay? Right? Is it people? Is it because people don't know that the food at Sheets is not real great for them? They, they, you go to Sheets not because you're looking for good food. You don't go to sheets because you're looking for nutrition to feed your body. You go to sheets because you want something salty, sweet, or greasy to feed your soul. And you know what it is? It's your your flesh that that is at at work there. I'm bored. I'm lonely. I'm tired. I, 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 I want something to satisfy me. Your flesh. The world is driven and dominated by these internal desires. Now, in in Romans, Paul says that for those in Christ, the power of the flesh has been broken. You don't have to obey your flesh, but it's still there. We who are followers of Jesus, that flesh is still there. So the world is filled with flesh. Second, the, the world is filled with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Now, the flesh refers to your internal desires. You have this internal desirer that is wanting all the time. The lust of the eyes is about external things, things outside of you, what you see, what you see with your eyes that stimulates a whole other set of desires. This is the way commercials work, right? You watch a commercial and suddenly you have a longing for something. You didn't even want it until you saw it in the commercial, but now you've got to have it. There's a website that I've seen, occasionally I have visited, it's got a clever name called dudeiwantthat.com. And um, dudeiwantthat.com is a treasure trove of items for nerds and geeks. If you want a lightsaber that actually works, you can buy it on All right. If you want a Wookiee mask, you can buy it at dudeiwantthat.com. If and when the first, uh, um, uh, self, uh, the first rocket that you can wear yourself and fly to work, if, is, if it ever becomes available, it will be available for sale on dudeiwantthat.com. Okay? That's what this website is. And what's amazing about dudeiwantthat.com is that nobody wants any of the things that are on the website until they see it there, and then you've got to have it. I've got to have that garbage can in the, in the shape of the Hulk's foot. I've got to have it for my office. I've got to have it. You didn't know you needed it until you saw it. Then you've got to have it. Oh. This is, this is um, what happens all the time. You see things and, and you, you want it. Uh, if, if you accumulate enough of these things, these internal desires and these external things that come, if you accumulate enough of them, you know what then you have? Pride. The pride of life, the third thing he mentions that's in the world. And now the word life that's translated here is the Greek word bios. Has anybody ever taken a biology class, the study of life? He's not talking about your physical life here. He's talking about the necessities of life, the entailments of life, food, shelter, clothing. You get enough of these things and you get them in enough varieties and it will push you towards pride. Uh, John's writing here about a, a sort of self-confidence, an arrogance, a God-forgetting, God-neglecting sort of self-sufficiency, and our world produces that by the metric ton. The more stuff you have, the more inclined you are toward it. And this is where we live. Just, just think about this. We have flesh, we have eyes still, we have the capacity to be proud people and, and notice how what John is he's talking about the lust of your flesh that drives you to all kinds of immorality. He's talking about the lust of your eyes that drives you toward greed and envy and covetousness. And he's talking about pride. Does anybody have trouble with those things? Actually, I think it would be good for us to remember that we do. Um, that we sh- we, 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 It would be wise for us to admit this, to, to own this. Don't love the world and what's in it. We swim in the ocean of this world, this ocean of desires and, and pride. That's why we need help from one another. Most of the time, though, we're afraid to admit this or talk about this because here we are. We're sitting in these pews or in the slightly more comfortable chairs downstairs, and, and we're wearing our church clothes, and, and we, we smile when we walk into the place, we don't have these problems, right? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. <laughs> no. This, these inclinations, this temptation is real, and it's real for all of us. Real for all of us, this temptation toward perversion and greed and envy and covetousness and laziness. You married a person like that, just like that. You, your grandmother is a person like this. Grandma don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. Don't love these desires. Don't long to participate in them. We all have this. Today, after the service, you are going to shake hands with someone as they leave, and you're going to smile at them and you're going to tell them a good, have a good week. Who spent two or three days this week battling fiercely their lusts of their own flesh, longing for things that will destroy their marriage, destroy their reputation, destroy their health, destroy uh, the reputation of our church. You talked to this morning already to someone who has spent their time daydreaming about what other people have because they've seen it on television and how much they want it and how much their life would be so much better if they had a house or a car or a family or a dog or a job like that that they've seen and they spent all their time daydreaming about it this week. This is where we are, brothers and sisters. Let's admit this to one another. It's not a secret. We all have this problem. We need help. That's why we meet together with one another, so we can encourage one another and help each other and say, brother, the, that, that fleshly lust that is so attractive to you, it's terrible, remember that, it's destructive, it will ruin you. So John warns us about this, because this is the world in which we live, and it applies to everyone. <laughs> you go on the high school halls, Penn Manor, L.S., Hemfield, there are students, you know this, who are walking around looking at other people's shoes and thinking, man, I really want those shoes. I wish I had those shoes. Or they're, they're walking around and looking at other people and they're thinking, man, I wish she was my girlfriend. I wish he was my boyfriend. That would be great. I love that. There are people that walk around the halls of Willow Valley, the retirement community, looking at each other jealous over the walkers that somebody else has. <laughs> Every single one of us, we have this problem. Don't love the world or anything in the world. What's in the world? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Now, why? Why do we not long for these things? Why not, John? Tell us why not. That's where we're going to turn now. Why does God hate this love? Why does God hate the love of the world? Two reasons, and we're going to actually start in verse 17. Don't love the world. Why? Because the world is temporary. The world is temporary. Verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. When you love the world, you're investing in what will not last. This verse reminds us we are very poor at estimating true value. We are not very good at estimating the true value of things. We're bad at it. And one of the things that, we often is miss, uh, that is often missing in our evaluation of the true value of things is we, we miss out on the, 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 the element of time. Things that endure are truly valuable. I have a book on my shelf. It's by a Puritan author called Thomas Brooks. It's a great little book. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. <laughs> no one would publish a book with that title uh, today. Uh, But precious remedies against Satan's device. You could benefit from reading the table of contents. One of the things in the table of contents, the chapter titles, encourages readers to think about how you will feel about this sin in an hour. When you're tempted toward this sin, think about how you'll feel 60 minutes after you commit it. You can feel you can feel the impact of that when you think about chocolate cake, right? How am I really going to feel about this in an hour? Right now, it's the only thing I can think of, but in an hour, I'll, I'm going to regret it. How will you feel about that piece of chocolate cake in an hour? How will you feel about the pornography in an hour? You can think about that. How will I feel about this in an hour? Don't just think about an hour, brothers and sisters. Think about eternity. How am I going to feel about this in eternity? He says the things in this world pass away. They're passing away. That's the same phrase he used back in John Two 8, 1 John two eight. The darkness is passing away, and the true light is shining. First Corinthians seven thirty one says, "The world in its present form is passing away, it's passing away." Notice the contrast. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Recently, the United Nations uh, released a climate report said that we and it said we have about ten years to make drastic changes in our environmental practices or the world is over as we know it. We've got 10 years to uh, drastically change, drastically reduce the amount of uh, emissions, carbon emissions that we emit into the planet or the world as we know it will come to an end. Now I think that we should be good stewards of the world that God made, that's true. But, But here is a passage in 1 John 2 about the end of the world too. Every worldview has, a, has an understanding of how the world's going to end. Um, do you know how here you survive the end of the world? You survive the end of the world by doing the will of God. That's how you live forever. Not indulging in the lust of the flesh, not indulging in the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, but the will of God. John's reminding his readers to make a choice. Make a choice about what you're going to do. There are two ways to live. One leads to death, one leads to life. You have to choose. Do not love the world because the world and the things in it are passing away. Now here's the second reason not to love the world and it's in verse 15. Why else should we not love the world? Because love for the Father is exclusive. Love for the Father is exclusive. Verse 15 says, If anyone loves the world, love for, your translation might say of, we'll talk about that in a minute, love for the Father is not in them. So love of the Father or love for the Father, is it the Father's love for us or is it our love for the Father? Which one is it? Now it's possible that John is being intentionally ambiguous but I think that uh, the NIV, my translation, is essentially correct here. You cannot love the Father and the world at the same time. Jesus said it, right? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate it, the one, and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Love for the Father is exclusive. You can't love the Father and the world at the same time. Or, if you want to put it another way, followers of Jesus, we don't love the world because we found something better to live for. We found someone better to love. We can't love the world because the love for the world takes us in the wrong direction. It takes us away from our love for the Father. Love for the world is not going to get us where we're going. Occasionally during the summer months, I drive around town and I see people walking to the Millersville pool. Hot outside. These teenagers or older children walking to the pool. So if you go up Prince Street from here to get to the Millersville pool, you've got to pass by the tennis courts. Uh, one of the tennis courts at Millersville University. You'd stand there and you'd say to them, "Hey, come on over here. I got I got a tennis racket. I got tennis balls. Let's play tennis." No, we aren't playing tennis. We're going to the pool. And then you say, "Hey, this is the duck pond. I got bread. You want to feed the ducks?" No. I'm going to the pool. You got to pass the Millersville University Baseball Stadium. Hey, you want to come play baseball? Uh, home run derby, let's do it right now. No, we're going to the pool. We're going to the pool. We can't stop and do anything else because we're going to the pool. And the world says, hey, come and love me. Love what you desire and it'll make you happy. Love what you see because it will make you happy. Be proud of yourself because of what you have. No, can't. I don't have time for that. I love the Father. We're loving the Father. David Haig wrote a book called The Obedience Option, and he talks about something called overwhelming faith. That's his phrase for this thing he, he describes, overwhelming faith. When, one day, Haig was talking to a young man, and this young man said that he, he had this pattern in his life of uh, sleeping with different women. And he said, I, the young man said, I know it's wrong, I know it's wrong, but it's just this irresistible force. My, my sexual lust is so strong, I can't help it. I can't stop it. I have these urges. It's not my fault. I know that God didn't create me this way, but, it, well, he shouldn't have created me with such so strong desires because they're irresistible. David Hague said to him, All right, uh, suppose that um, I came into your room and caught you and your girlfriend as you were starting this inevitable process. And suppose I took out ten $100 bills and I put it on the desk and I said, I will give you $1,000 if you stop right now. What would you do? And the young man said, well, I want the cash. David Haig said, what happened to the irresistible desire? What happened? Haig says, we both realized a very simple truth. One passion may seem irresistible until a greater passion comes along. If we take this principle into the arena of righteous living, it comes out like this. The only way to overcome a passion for sin is with an overwhelming passion for righteousness. This overwhelming passion for righteousness is actually a mindset that the Bible calls faith. Here is a helpful definition of this kind of overwhelming faith. Faith is a life-dominating conviction that all God has for me through obedience is better by far than anything Satan can offer me through selfishness and sin. We don't love the world because we love the Father instead. Do you remember where this love for the Father comes from? 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. This is the reason, brothers and sisters, why we talk about God's love, why we sing about God's love, why Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that the believers there would come to know God's love, how high and wide and long and deep it is to understand this love because this this love, is, is, it's transformative. It changes us. This is why you should talk about God's love a lot in your house. Because God's love is transformative. I think John brings these things together pretty well in 1 John chapter 3. Look at it. We read these verses a minute ago, but look at it, what it says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. We've been loved by God. We've been transformed by that love. We love Him in return. And because we love Him in return, we don't have time for all this other stuff. In fact we're thinking about that day long in the future forever well maybe not long in the future but that day that's coming in the future when we're going to see jesus and we're going to be like him and because of that we purify ourselves and it all starts with god's love for us and our responsive love to him god's love is transformative how do we know that first john four ten. this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In a few minutes, we're going to partake of these elements, the Lord's Supper that is here. Jesus commanded us to do this regularly, didn't he? When we meet together, we eat bread, we drink juice. We do it for a variety of reasons, we do this, but eating and drinking, basically we we remember his death on the cross for our sins. That the Lord Jesus is our sin bearer. He took the blame that we deserved. He bore God's wrath. He lived the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved to die. And then he rose again. And John 3.16 says, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is God's love manifest in the gift of his son. And he calls for us to respond in, in faith to him so that we might be forgiven and given life. That's the full measure of God's love. We're prone to forget it. We're prone to forget it, which is why we remind one another over and over again at the table as we come. Look at what manner, behold, behold the love that God has for us. It's transformative. Change your life. Everything else is so bland. Everything else is so bland in comparison to the love of God. So we're in the holiday season, right? time for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is coming soon. Then Christmas and New Year's. Some of you are going to see your family. You're really looking forward to it. Some of you will fly to Grandma's house. Some of you will drive over the river, through the woods. You'll go see Grandma. Don't stop on the way to your grandmother's house to hug a porcupine. It's just some advice. Don't stop on your way to Grandma's house to hug a porcupine. It will hurt and the porcupine won't like it either. Okay? Just don't do it. Don't love the world. We're on our way to the Father's house. Don't love the world. It's just going to hurt you. Don't love the world or anything in it. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, we are grateful to you for this, the directness with which the Apostle John addressed us. It does give us comfort to know that the Apostle knew truly what was in our hearts. Lord, we confess sometimes that if we, we think if the people around us, even now this morning, if the people around us knew what was truly in our hearts, they would hate us. But John, John knew, so he warned us about our fleshly lusts and our greedy eyes and our terrible pride. It comforts us to know that the Apostle was willing to write to followers of Jesus, people he knew were believers who who had these troubles. So we come before you, Father, this morning together, and, and we confess that we are tempted to love the world, to find satisfaction and joy here in temporary and empty things, things that distract us from you. We confess that to you. Lord, I do pray that you would remind us even this morning as we partake of these elements and as we read the rest of 1 John and the weeks that are to come and, and as we talk with one another, that you remind us of how great the Father's love for us is. Lord, we get so distracted. We we, we even, if we get bored with it, with, we get distracted from your love and we get bored by thinking about it. It's so foolish. So help us. We cry out to you this morning that you would, by your Spirit, again, remind us of the tremendous weight and worth and value of your love for us, that it would change us. Lord, give us a great taste and a great longing for that day when the Lord Jesus comes. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And give us a distaste for the empty promises that this world makes. Help us, help us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.